You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about migraine headaches. Joining me is Dr. Ashani Kumar, a pediatric headache fellow with the Division of Neurology and the Pediatric Headache Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Kumar. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. Well, let's get started right away talking about migraines. I love this topic because it's something that comes up in primary care all of the time, and I feel like people are always asking questions and wanting more on this topic. So I'm glad that you're here to help us sort through some of the newer recommendations and things that I think are going to be new for a lot of listeners. So let me start with saying that in getting a headache history, I ask the same sort of questions that I ask for many other types of pain, things like what does it feel like? When did it start? How long does it last? And obviously, where is it located? But specifically when soliciting a headache history, there are some red flag features that are a little bit different, obviously, than other types of pain and might raise concerns. So I want to focus on some of those with you and starting with the part about progression. So what's the typical pattern for a migraine headache in terms of onset? Yeah, so usually when a migraine starts, there's actually a prodromal phase before the actual head pain occurs. So this is usually a couple of hours where a patient might notice that they seem more tired or irritable, maybe have some light and sound sensitivity. And then after this, then the headache starts, which usually builds up within minutes or sometimes hours to a moderate to severe throbbing-like pain, which can be unilateral or bilateral, and you'll still have the associated symptoms, um, such as lighter sound sensitivity. Some people might get nauseated, have some vomiting, and typically these headaches last in children anywhere from 2 to 72 hours. Mm. And so that sort of slower, as you said, prodrome and escalation is really a key part of getting that progression history here, right? Because a thunderclap or sudden onset is a red flag. Yes. If a patient tells you that their headache starts and is at its peak intensity within a minute of starting, that is definitely a red flag. And then another red flag that I was always taught is that occipital headaches are always worrisome. But I understand that this isn't always true, or maybe this is an outdated way of thinking. So is there a location that we should be concerned about? And is it occipital? Yeah. So as you said, occipital headaches, historically, physicians used to think of secondary headaches. However, Recent studies have shown that actually occipital headaches aren't of concern unless there's an abnormality on neurologic exam. Otherwise, most concerning location is if a headache is always side-locked, meaning it's always on the right side or the left side. This should alert a provider for possibly a secondary headache. Migraine headaches tend to move around the head, so if a patient is telling you, oh, my headache is always on the right side of my head or the left front, it doesn't go anywhere else, that 
should alert providers. That's a great point. And knowing that occipital headaches are not always worrisome is really reassuring to me since sometimes kids just point to the back of their head and it's hard (laughs) to know (laughs) if that's real or not. But side-locked headaches, okay, so we're going to keep that in mind as a big red flag. What are some of the other big red flags when we're getting our history that should make us raise some concern about maybe more urgent evaluation of a headache? Yes. So as neurologists, what we always think about when we hear someone having a headache and want to find out is, is there anything in history or on exam that would want us to send the patient to the ER for urgent imaging or any other kind of workup? Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I always think about, either from the history or the exam, is are there any neurologic symptoms during the headache or even after the headache that are lasting? For example, any kind of altered mental status, any type of seizure, motor weakness of any type, or persistent paresthesias. What we've also already talked about, which would require urgent imaging for any kind of structural abnormality or vascular malformations, is a thunderclap headache, which is, Mm -hmm. like we talked about a couple minutes ago, is a headache that peaks in intensity within a minute. Because migraines, as we've already said, usually take several minutes to hours to really reach its peak. The other thing to notice is, was there any kind of acute head trauma that would warrant imaging? Or is there a really rapid progression of the headaches that maybe they started a week ago and suddenly they're daily and constant or really disabling to the patient? So those would be the main things I would look out for that would warrant quicker investigation, most likely in the ER. Great. Those are good things for us to keep in mind. Something that I ask patients about sometimes too is whether or not the headache wakes them up from sleep. Is that something that you consider a particularly urgent red flag? So we get this a lot. So if patients are having headaches that are always or more often than not waking up from sleep due to pain, I would consider that a red flag. However, a lot of patients might say, yeah, once in a while, Mm -hmm. maybe like once a month or a couple times a month, I might wake up at night with a headache. That's not as concerning to me unless it's happening very frequently more often than not. Okay. That's a helpful distinction. Thank you. Another thing that I can find tricky sometimes in history taking is distinguishing a migraine from a tension headache because they do have some overlapping features. So how can we best distinguish these two kind of common types of headaches? Yes. So there's a few distinguishing features between migraine and tension type headaches. First and foremost, migraine headaches tend to be more severe in their pain score compared to tension type headaches, which are typically much milder, maybe sometimes a moderate intensity pain, but patients with migraines tend to have moderate to severe intensity pain. The other thing is with the type of pain, the quality of pain also differs between migraines and tension type headaches. Patients who have migraines tend to have a throbbing or pulsating quality of a headache, whereas tension type headaches tend to be much more dull and more of a pressure-like quality. And along with the quality and severity of differences, the other thing to note is the location. So migraines are more likely to be unilateral, though in children we do see bilateral headaches. However, tension-type headaches should always be bilateral and they should not be unilateral. The other thing is that 
with migraine attacks, the headaches are usually aggravated by some routine physical activity, whereas tension-type headaches, there's no difference in the headache severity if you're doing a physical activity or not. And then finally, one of the key features is that migraine headaches tend to have associated symptoms. So this usually includes at least photo and or phonophobia, or they can also have nausea with or without vomiting. Tension-type headaches tend to not have associated symptoms, but if they're going to, it's either going to be photophobia or phonophobia. So not both of them together, and there should not be any nausea or vomiting. Well, thank you for teasing those two apart. As I said, it comes up often, so I like that you give us some points to distinguish those two. Another thing that I find sometimes tricky to describe to patients is an aura. I know it's important to ask about because they're associated with an increased risk of stroke. And I feel like when patients describe an aura to me, I can identify that that's an aura, but sometimes they say, what is an aura? (laughs) And it's hard to sometimes articulate those symptoms back. So how would you describe it? Yeah, so auras happen in about 25 to 33% of people with migraines. And an aura itself is a distinct set of neurologic phenomena that occur right before or at the beginning of a migraine attack. They tend to last at least five minutes, and they should not last longer than 60 minutes. And whatever neurologic phenomena is happening in the aura should be fully reversible. The most common type of aura are visual auras, such as seeing spots, zigzag lines, or sparkles are a few examples. However, blurry vision does not count as an aura. Other common types of auras that you might see are sensory auras, such as numbness or tingling, or a language aura, which affects your speech. Great. Thank you for describing the different ways that an aura might present. Now, we've talked a lot about the signs and symptoms that should prompt urgent head imaging, such as, as you mentioned, an abnormal exam, a sudden severe headache or thunderclap, associated seizures, head trauma, or altered mental status. But what are some of the other reasons for an outpatient workup with neurology, for example, or maybe even just within primary care, but including outpatient imaging? What I always tell primary care physicians is that if you're going to be ordering outpatient imaging, which most often than not, we prefer MRI brain imaging with and without contrast, if you're getting imaging, it's also very reasonable to put in the neurology referral at that point. Um, Some things to think about for just an outpatient workup and getting imaging are for headaches that have a positional component. So are headaches worse with laying down or standing? That would warrant imaging to look for any kind of structural abnormality. For patients who have headaches that are worse with laying down, we think of increased ICP. Mm -hmm. As with patients who stand up and have worsening headaches, we think of any type of CSF leak. We've already discussed patients who might wake up in the middle of the night due to pain. I would get imaging for that. If it's not happening that often, can be non-urgent. Other reasons to get imaging, which we've already talked about a little bit, is if they have any type of side-locked headache, as well as other things to think about are headaches that might be precipitated by certain Valsalva maneuvers. So that includes bearing down, coughing, laughing, sneezing, for example. Other things to think about for imaging-wise is, are the headaches progressive, such as a patient might have had episodic headaches occurring a couple times a week and now have progressed to daily headaches, would be reasonable to get imaging at that point. 
Always you should think about getting imaging in patients who are under the age of six who are having recurrent headaches that aren't explained by benign causes such as a virus. Mm -hmm. So those would be the main reasons to get outpatient imaging and also at the same time referring to neurology. Great. Thank you for delineating some of those. So let's now shift into talking more about treatment. I always talk to all of my patients with headaches about healthy habits or healthy headache habits, such as things like hydration, sleep, exercise, and stress reduction. But another mainstay of early treatment is NSAIDs. And we hear, though, sometimes that too much in the NSAID category can cause rebound headaches. So walk us through how to appropriately use NSAIDs for migraines. NSAIDs should be used at the onset of a migraine, which we typically tell our patients, you know, within 30 minutes and at most within 60 minutes at the start of your headache for the best response. We always prescribe NSAIDs at the maximum dose, which for younger patients is 10 mg per kg for ibuprofen as well as naproxen. NSAIDs should be taken with 8 to 16 ounces of water or some kind of low sugar sports drink. And to avoid rebound headaches, we always counsel our patients that NSAIDs should be taken no more than two to three times a week or a total of 10 days in a month. Great. That's a good parameter for us to keep in mind. It's easy, I think, sometimes for patients with recurrent headaches to overdo it with the NSAIDs. So it's great to have a guideline to give them. Now, triptans are something that have only more recently become familiar with prescribing within primary care and used for more moderate to severe migraines. So can you explain just how we should be using triptans in this setting? Typically, neurologists, the way we think about triptans is that we reserve triptans for more severe migraines, whereas NSAIDs we typically use for more moderate migraine attacks, though both of them can be used together if, for example, a patient has some big test coming up and their migraines have been getting worse, we might tell them to use the triptan and NSAID together. Like NSAIDs, triptans work best when used at the onset of a migraine attack. With triptans, however, side effects increase with higher doses. So unlike NSAIDs, we typically start with a low dose, and if it's ineffective, then you may increase the dose. And then similar to NSAIDs, frequent use can also cause rebound headaches, So to keep it easy, it's similar to NSAIDs. We limit the use two to three days in a week, no more than 10 days in a month. That's handy that they're both similarly used. So we can keep that in mind. So something else that I've seen recommended more recently are nutraceuticals such as magnesium, riboflavin, and coenzyme Q10. Are these effective in prevention of migraines, or are they only useful in patients who have dietary restrictions that might cause deficiencies of these nutrients in particular? Yeah, nutraceuticals are actually a great first-line option for any patient. Though, if there are dietary restrictions, a provider may pick one nutraceutical over the other. Mm -hmm. Such as if a patient is vegetarian or does not eat much animal meat, you might consider adding coenzyme Q10, which is typically found in meat products. Or, for example, if a patient avoids dairy products, you could consider riboflavin over magnesium and coenzyme Q10. But again, for any patient, nutraceuticals are a great option. Great. So with whatever treatment plan we end up choosing, how long until we should expect to see improvement? I'm wondering, are migraines easy to treat or should we expect it to take weeks before we start to see change? The goal of any preventive medication for the treatment of migraines is to reduce headache frequency and or 
the severity by at least 50%. So sometimes it's not easy to treat and it requires a little bit of trial and error. In general, we don't expect to see results from starting a migraine preventive until at least eight weeks of use, and we consider it a treatment failure if there has been no improvement after two to three months of consistent use before we move on to another option. And I think this is a very important point to counsel patients on, given that many patients will reach out to you after a couple of weeks saying they haven't seen improvement yet. Yeah, that's a very helpful tip because I would have expected it to be a little bit faster myself, honestly. So it's helpful to counsel patients to stick with it. It reminds me almost of our mental health treatment plans with things like SSRIs where exactly. you don't see mm-hmm. improvement for many weeks, um, sometimes months. And so that's helpful anticipatory guidance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you've helped us all feel better about treating migraines in primary care, but I know there are many times, as you mentioned, when we should be referring to neurology. So can you remind us of some of the reasons that should prompt us to refer to neurology? Yeah. So other than what we talked about, sometimes there are other reasons to refer to neurology. For example, let's say you've tried a first-line preventive option and you've done the 12 weeks of the trial and it didn't work. I think that's a great time to refer to neurology at that point. Also, if the patient is having significant disability from their migraines, such as missing a lot of school, unable to participate in other activities, would be a great reason to bring them into our neurology clinic. Other things are that there's just a slow progression of headaches over time. So maybe it's been years, but however, their headaches have gone from episodic, which might be a couple days a week, to more chronic pattern, where more often than not, they have headaches. Along with that, if patients have daily headaches or there's no family history of headaches, those are both reasons to also refer to neurology. Some other things that you might consider referring to neurology include Are patients having any abnormal cranial symptoms, such as tearing, rhinorrhea, flushing of their face with their headaches? Or if the parents just ask for imaging and a neurology referral, that's also a valid reason to refer to neurology. Great. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you teaching us more about migraine headaches today. We appreciate your time as well as the clinical care that you provide to our patients along with your colleagues at the Pediatric Headache Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes, or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 